turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 begins the book of comfort, as it's called. Isaiah 40 through 46, some people divide that up slightly differently, but you might remember the sermon series title we gave it many, many moons ago, Comfort After Judgment. Comfort After Judgment. Well, the comfort is here, and this chapter by itself is pretty well known. We could, yes, spend three, four, five weeks on just Isaiah 40. Maybe one day we'll do that. But there's also a sense where that would be like listening to Beethoven's fifth one minute at a time. You would miss the crescendos, the transitions, and, and all of the diversity there. So let's let the deep, deep love of Jesus seen in this chapter roll upon us like a mighty ocean in its fullness, vast, unmeasured, boundless free. Hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a, onto a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will Carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens 
like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good to us. Be good to us now as we give attention to your word. Would you grab hold of us if you don't have our attention and cause us to hear all of your goodness, all of your majesty that you've revealed to us this morning. We pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen. Get out of the way and let the word do the work. It's good advice for preachers, especially when you have a passage like this, a great, soaring, quotable passage. Is it your favorite? I try not to call certain passages my favorite because what does that say about the rest of God's word? But if you have a favorite, you could do worse than this. Comfort, comfort my people. Prepare the way of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Behold your God who's held the oceans in his hand. To whom will you compare God? Do you not know? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God? They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You could do worse than that. Unless, of course, you're, you're like me and <clears throat> you don't need any comfort because you were immune from the weariness of this fallen world. My being sarcastic facetious. I'll simply tell a story. A few years after I started seminary, it's possible that I was already ordained at this point. My friend Gray said to me, you know, I knew you before you were perfect. We all need friends like that. Friends who see through our, our sales pitch, see through our own press releases. Friends who know that fine doesn't really mean fine who know that fine, borrowed from many sources, stands for freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. And our God knows us like that, even better than we know ourselves. The God who led Israel through the wilderness into the promised land, the God who dragged them back through the wilderness again after they had 
rebelled and disobeyed. The God who promises once more that he can, that he will bring them through the wilderness again, bring us through the wilderness because his promises are forever promises. Five points today, they all have the word ever in them as in forever. Let's get to it so the intro doesn't go on forever. First up, we see the ever comforting God. The ever comforting God, verses one and two. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Jerusalem and Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, they needed comfort during Isaiah's days. They were under seemingly continual pressure from Assyria, from other mighty nations. They needed comfort and they needed the war to end. God knew that. Yet this word did not come to pass in Isaiah's day. He uttered it, but it wasn't reality. This is future comfort that Isaiah is speaking of. A hundred years after the Assyrian threat, after the northern kingdom, their, their brothers to the north, after they had fallen and were exiled, after Assyria fell and Babylon arose to be the dominant power, only then would this comfort come to pass. After Babylon conquered them and hold them off. Only after Israel had received double for her sins. That's an exaggeration, of course, because every sin deserves death. Every sin is cosmic treason against our holy God, the creator of the universe, the giver of all good gifts, whether we realize it or not. It wasn't literally double. Sure felt like it. One author says war is often glamorized, but in reality is it about death and destruction, rape and torture. These were people who needed comfort. They needed to know that God could comfort them despite all the horrible things that they had seen. And do you know that? Do you trust God? Well, madam, a Christian, of course I trust God. Do you trust God with all your fears, with all your weariness, with all of your hurts, if you're unsure, then ask yourself, do you know your God? Do you need to know him more? If you knew him more, would you trust him more? Would you trust him to comfort you in all your weariness? If you knew that he was the ever comforting God. Next, we see this. We see the ever conquering God, the ever conquering God, both in verses 3 through 5, as well as 9 through 11. I played with several different headings here. The breathtaking God, the ever-coming God, the glorious God, the, the return of the king. If you want to go Tolkien, uh, uh, you could. All of that's here, and then some. You remember how I said things were going to get worse before they got better for Israel. You also remember all the glorious promises that Isaiah gives early on in his book, the, the book of Emmanuel, as it's called, chapters 6 through 12. How are those possibly going to come true? If, if we're just fighting off one enemy after another, if the great Davidic dynasty is cut off, if David's son is no longer on the throne, how's all this going to happen? Well, it's because he's coming once again. Verse 3, a voice cries, 
In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Sound familiar? The, the words, of course, that almost every gospel quotes about John the baptizer, the cousin, the forerunner of Jesus, the one that would blaze the trail so that the king could come. And that's what these words are. They are announcing the coming of a king. You see, if the king was coming to town, what would you do? Well, you would fix up the highway for his royal chariot. You would fill in all the potholes. You would do what verse 4 says. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. In the rough places, a plain. In the coming of Jesus, it was going to be like this. And then some. Verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. The mouth of the Lord is spoken. It will be breathtaking. It will be glorious, especially if you're beaten down and hopeless, especially if you think the government hates you and everyone who looks like you. For the record, I'm talking about exiled Israelites in the 8th century BC. Who did you think I was talking about? My point is feelings of oppression, disenfranchisement. They're neither new nor a thing of the past. They are both. They will be with us in one form or another to one degree or another until King Jesus comes. They'll be with us even after the latest political crisis is over. In every generation, God's people long to hear the good news of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Go up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, Herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Who will receive this recompense, this vengeance of King Jesus? Well, first, who deserves it? All of us. Don't, don't believe me? Well, well, let's read the Bible together sometime. Let's see what it says. But, but second, who will receive it? We all deserve it. Who will receive it? Isn't it everyone who's not taken refuge in King Jesus, the suffering servant who is to come? But how do I know if I've done that? Well, have you clung to him? Have you clung to the crucified one of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the servant king, the one who was pierced for our transgressions? If you take shelter in the one who took God's wrath, then you are safe. And if not, you will have to face his judgment, his wrath on your own. So I hope you've been working out. I hope you've been a good boy who stayed off the naughty list. What if I haven't? Then hear his gospel. Hear his good news that his people announce and herald. Then run to him and receive him with faith like a child. My kids have been singing a song. Uh, truth is, I've been singing it. So has my wife. We've all been singing it. It goes like this. Jesus said, if I am weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. 
And isn't that what verse 11 is, is getting at? He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Our great God conquers. That's what we see here. He conquers so that he might comfort us. Always and forever. He is the ever comforting, ever conquering God. And if we knew that about him, then we could trust him even more. With all of our enemies who harass us or people like us, we could trust him with all of our obstacles. He's not just ever comforting and ever conquering. He is also, thirdly, the ever constant God. The ever constant God, verses 6 through 8. I talked to a pastor, another church, this week. Their church had had a staff member a while back who was guilty of spiritual abuse. I'm Mark Driscoll, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast type stuff. They handled the fallout as well as they could, removed the person from the position and tried to make amends for people that were hurt. <clears throat> and it's still horrible for everyone. Thoughts run through my brain. It's sad. It's, it's truth. Things like this happen. The best of men are men at best. Also thought people have been hurt. This has happened throughout our, our country. I don't want to say it's happened in every church. I don't think it has. But it is reality. It has happened. People have been hurt. People have lost faith in the church and in Christians because of the actions of a few. I thought as well, when this happens, it's that much harder for pastors and others to speak the truth in love because we can't always see the hurt until it's too late. It might be that well-intended, tough love looks too similar to toughness without love that they've experienced in the past. And the reason I bring it up, the other thing that runs through my head, is when Christians let people down, it's only natural to ask, can I trust Christians? And then the next doubt comes hard and fast. Can I trust Christ? Can I trust God? Is God reliable? Or if you're the people of Israel centuries ago, are the promises of God still true if they take years and decades and centuries to come true? Verse 6, <clears throat> a voice cries, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. You and I are grass. This is not a reference to marijuana, since we're in the state of Colorado. Let's clarify. I expected at least a couple laughs there. But, but seriously, you and I are, are grass. We're a plant that quickly fades, as one song says, here today and gone tomorrow, a vapor in the wind. We're dust in the wind. Without Christ, that's what we are. Weak, frail, unreliable. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is likely that everyone in this room will be forgotten a hundred years from now, assuming Jesus doesn't return before then. John the Baptist said, I am not the Christ. And we need to remember that more than we think. In all our labors at this church as individuals, are we teaching others that we are the Christ, that we are the one they should depend on when they have problems? 
Is that what we're implying, even if it's not what we're saying? Or are we teaching them to look to the one and only friend who will never fail them? Grass withers, verse 8 says, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, I don't want to ignore the fact that we as God's people, we are called to pursue holiness as God's people. But there is only one on this side of heaven who is holy. Only one who is utterly reliable. Only one whose promises never fail. Only one whose word will stand forever. And that's where we look with our disappointments. Disappointments with people, with Presbyterians, with the plans of God, which he is working together for good, even if it doesn't look like it right now. Do you trust God with your disappointments? Let me ask that again. Do you trust the ever-constant, ever-reliable God with your disappointments? You should. And you probably already know that. But maybe you need to know him even better, even more. Maybe you need to rediscover the incomparable God. That's our fourth point this morning. The incomparable God, verses 12 through 26. Because he is ever constant, he ever comforts, he ever conquers. Because who is this God? Again, this God, he is the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I ran out of fingers for all those. Again, that's Westminster Shorter Catechism number four. The man who started one of the seminaries I graduated from, he used to like to say, how big is your God? That's now the title of his autobiography, not his autobiography, his biography is written after his death. How big is your God? Big enough to start this seminary, even if it looks unlikely, nigh impossible. How big is your God? Now that's slightly more polite than the title of a book by J.B. Phillips. Your God is too small. And don't get lost in all the technicalities. What's the point here? Your understanding of God is too small. As Job suffered, he forgot that. Of course, maybe we're more holy than Job. Maybe we don't need that reminder. Then again, maybe we do. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who's done that? I don't see any hands raised, including my own. Because none of us can compare to him. No human. No false idol. No, no false God. We are not the creator, but he is. We are not all wise, but he is, verses 13 and 14 say. We are not larger than life, greater than self, lasting forever, but he is, verses 15 through 17. Idols can't compare to him, verses 18 through 20. They're just a golden trinket. Do you not know this? Have you not heard this? Or have you forgotten how vast, wise, and powerful our God is? How he alone can shift geopolitical realities with a snap of his fingers. By the way, Marvel fans, unlike Thanos, he doesn't need infinity stones. He doesn't even need actual fingers to do that. 
Verses 22 and 23 say, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretch out the heavens, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth his emptiness. Because remember, rulers, princes are men, and men are like grass flowers fade away compared to him. Verse 24, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. What's left to say about this incomparable God to whom then will you compare me, verse 25 says, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, he who brings out their host by number calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. <clears throat> Keep in mind, Isaiah was not Pollyanna. Read the earlier chapters. He knew how bad it was. Of course, God knew as well. He knew of their sins, which were many. He knew about the enemy at the gates, literally. But as one author says, how could they give in to despair? with a God like this. Why is Isaiah good news? Is it because we realize that some of God's people have it or had it worse than us? That's something. That ain't nothing. I mean, count your blessings. Yeah, name them one by one. Do it literally until your despair lifts, until your downcastness is not downcast anymore. Do that if you need to. But Isaiah is also good news because it shows us the deep, deep love of Jesus again and again until it breaks through. My family just finished reading a book on Corey Tenboom. Uh, I forget the name. You can ask my wife. I can ask my wife if you want me to. But it was, it was more age appropriate, we thought, maybe, than the sword fighter's recommendation for our kids. That said, our kids asked us to stop reading it <laughs> half a dozen times, frankly. It was scary. Nazis, concentration camps, death. It's big stuff for eight-year-olds and five-year-olds, you know? But as Corey and her sister said to each other many times and to others, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Another author says it this way about the dangers that Isaiah's people faced. Such truth is not so easy to believe when our world is in ruins. In the midst of suffering, we can become almost too numb to grasp it. Isaiah therefore closed the age-old truth in vivid language so that it will penetrate the dullness of those who are almost past hope. Take fresh hold of them and lift them up. You trust your God with all of your fears, with all of your doubts, with all of your hurts, all of your limitations, with all of the limitations of others. He'll never change. There's no point. She will never listen to me. Do you trust your God? How big is your God? Is he the incomparably good God of Isaiah 40? Is he the Holy One of Israel? 
The one who ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. If not, then I beg you, look at him one more time and see that he is the everlasting God. That's our fifth point, the everlasting God. Verses 25 to 31. You know, what's at the core of all our doubts? All our doubts about God's people, about the church, about humanity. When people say, and maybe some of you have said, or you know someone who has said, I just can't trust the church. Aren't they really saying, I just can't trust God? Don't tune me out, not yet. If that's you, you might think, well, Matt, it's a little more complex than that. You're right, it is. A wise man once told me trauma has layers. And you have to unravel the layers like strings so that you can understand them, so that you can respond to each one individually and not to the surreal reality that trauma creates. It's more complex. I may not get it. I'm not the best counselor on our pastoral staff, I'm not, I don't think. Jesus loves me anyway. Life is complex. Trauma is more complex. I may not get it, so don't listen to me. Listen to Isaiah, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? What's he saying? Isn't he speaking for the oppressed remnant, the ones who were holding on but barely holding on? Isn't this Psalm 42, verse 9, Why have you forgotten me, O God? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Isn't it Psalm 13? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? One time I was angry. I've been angry more than once, in case anybody was wondering, but there was one time when I was angry. I read a book on the Psalms, had a chapter on righteous anger, a chapter on unrighteous anger. It said something like this, isn't most of our anger at others really anger at God because of the circumstances that he has let me experience? And I'll go a step further. Isn't it also doubt that God can fix the broken pieces? After all, isn't he the one that shattered them? Perhaps that's one way to look at it. And if you think that, you're definitely not alone. You're definitely not the only one. You're not the only one living in a fallen world with fallen, finite people. You're not the only one who's weary. You're not the only one who feels weak and helpless sometimes. You know, some of the most brash, bullying people you'll ever meet are often the most scared and insecure. You're not the only one who's been disappointed, maybe by multiple people, be it God, God's people, some other institution. You're not the only one who has given up on that person, him, her, whoever, ever-changing not the only one who feels forgotten, who's sick of it all. He's just plain tired. But why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, 
And my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fallen, finite people in a fallen world need an infinite God, an everlasting God, an incomparably good God. And my friends, we have one. We have what we need. We have him. So wait for him. Renew your strength. Behold your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and your promises never fail. Father, this world was created good, but it is not as good as it was, and it is not as good as it will be. And we can sometimes forget where we are. We need that map like the one in the mall or the one in the theme park or the one at Garden of the Gods that says you are here. You are here in a fallen world and your God will one day come and rescue you. Father, we have a great and incomparably good hope. Remind us of that. Help us to look to you until the day when we taste and see that our God is good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd ask you to please stand with me. Christians have been saying the words of the Apostles' Creed for nearly 2,000 years, and we take a moment on Communion Sundays to do that together. I'll read the question if you will read the answer with me. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. If you would, please be seated. And those elders as well as a couple of deacons, because we're shorthanded this morning, are going to come forward to help serve communion. We have uh, tried to make communion uh, more familiar. Uh, we hope we haven't confused you. We are going to pass out bread. There's bread in the small cup here. And then there's also these two-in-one cups that have a wafer. They have juice in them. Um, as we pass each, you'll notice those. If you prefer one of those guys, go ahead and grab it. First time around, you can grab it the second time around if you want to, too. Um, 
We, regardless, will uh, let you know when it's time. I'll let you know it's time to eat together and drink together. So these are strange times, as I've said the past few months. But they're getting less strange. They're getting better. God is making all things new, which we always need to remember. We also need to remember that this is a foretaste of what's to come, a foretaste, an appetizer, a small preview. We will not enjoy the full meal, the one we sink our teeth into, until we are in heaven with Jesus. In Luke 22, verse 18, when he instituted this supper, he said to his disciples, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then Revelation 19, we believe, tells us about that day, that grand wedding feast that is to come. Until then, we wait in anticipation, and we also heed the call of Jesus who said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Blessed are those, he also said elsewhere, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Who's invited to this meal? Those who have trusted in Christ as the only one who can save them and those who have been baptized and accepted as members into the care of a local Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. I don't say you have to be a member of Forest Gate because this is not Forest Gate's meal. It's Christ's meal. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, we would ask you not to eat. We would also say, come talk to us, pastors, elders, whoever. We would love to talk with you more about it. As I know, another pastor says, there is still room at this table. It is not full. And we would also say, if you're in rebellion against your God, we would ask you not to eat, but go to him and make that relationship right. But if you know your sin and have confessed your sin and you cling to the blood of Jesus Christ, then come. Feast upon Christ and all his benefits to you. This meal is not for perfect people. It's for penitent, repentant sinners who know they need the blood of Christ to cover over their sin. Hear the words of institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ, delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you would, please pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come not because we are VIPs. We come not because we are holy and righteous on our own. We come because Christ has made us righteous through faith in him. We thank you that he is our sinless, spotless substitute and that we are clothed in righteousness divine. We are clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus. And so as we eat and drink his meal, would you feed our souls? Would you feed our faith? May we sense his presence and his power. 
more as we do so. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Behold, body of Christ broken for you and your sin. If you would, take a wafer or one of these two-in-one packets and then wait and we'll eat together in a moment.
things in life are simple. Some things in life are complex. Some of the best things in life are simple. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The book of Romans also says to us, for one will scarcely die for a good person. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Take and eat, body of Christ. After the same manner also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. O Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, give us thy peace. Please take a cup or use the juice from one of those two-in-one cups and wait that we drink together the blood of Christ.
of sin, the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Scripture also tells us, in the Old Testament and in the New, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, no forgiveness of sin. But God shed his blood for us, the Son of God, truly God, truly man, a sacrifice of infinite worth to take away the sins of his people. This cup is the new covenant in the blood of Christ shed for many unto remission of sins. Drink ye all of it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may we know that as surely as we taste the fruit of the vine, as surely as we taste the bread, your blood was shed for sinners like us. Your body was broken for sinners like us. We are not worthy of the least of your mercies. We are not worthy of this great meal, this grand feast that it foreshadows. We're not worthy but we've been made worthy by the blood of Christ. And so help us to go forth and walk in new obedience, new hope, a new found faith in all of your promises to us. May we live as becomes the followers of Jesus Christ. May others see our good works and give glory not to us, but to our great Father, their creator. We hope their Father as well. We ask all this in Jesus' great name. Amen.